Take your Bible and turn to Psalm chapter 5 as we continue our worship and wisdom series. If you remember, we went through Proverbs 1 through 9, and then we um, had some occasional sermons or topical type sermons, things specifically towards some needs or some events. And now we've been in Psalm. This is our fifth week in the Psalms. And we're going to walk through the first book of the Psalter this year. Hopefully, God willing, we'll go through 41 Psalms together, walking through and seeing Christ from that place. And this morning, I, I wonder, what's in your heart as you come before the Lord this morning? You know, I can't see what's in your heart. Your wife or your husband or your friend can't see what's there. All right? we, can, we can put on our Sunday best, so to speak. We can come into the, this place. We can say all the right things, sing all the right things, listen intently, and yet our hearts be in all types of places. Places like turmoil. Maybe there's turmoil in your life. Possibly you're facing a layoff at work. You know, that's the reality for a lot of people these days, right here in this community, and possibly more. You're facing conflict, maybe in your, in your home. Maybe you and your husband or your wife are struggling to see eye to eye on very crucial issues of raising children, or money, or sex, or any number of things, right? I mean, in our in our lives, our hearts can be in so many places rather than here where they are focused on Christ as we approach His Word. And so what I want to do with you this morning is walk through Psalm chapter 5, which is a psalm, again, I believe, set in the time of David's life when he's on the run from his son Absalom. It's, we've had in Psalm chapter 3... A morning psalm, and then we had in Psalm 4 an evening psalm. And David in his exile, out in the desert, running from his son, is in great turmoil. He can't appraise everything that's going on. He can't quite understand all of it, but he does understand this. God is his God. And he is a sinner. So whatever retribution is being laid out on him, he deserves it. Why? Because of his active sin, not his passive sin. What has David done at this point in his life? He lusted after a woman. He took her as his wife when she was his best friend's wife. One of his most trusted servants. He stole his wife. He murdered his servant, Uriah. He lied before the people of God. And so he says, as he's leaving, running from his son Absalom, don't even respond to the attacks of my enemies. That's what he tells his men. Don't respond. Because how do we know it's not from the Lord that all of these things are happening? I don't know where you are. But Psalm 5 is bold enough to say wherever you are, you're there because it's where the Lord has you today. Psalm 5 is yet another morning psalm. We're in a rotation here. Psalm 3 was a morning psalm. Psalm 5 is a morning psalm. Psalm 4 is an evening psalm. Psalm 
6 will be an evening psalm. Spurgeon, when talking about the psalms in, his, in the preface to his famous devotional morning and evening, said that prayer should be the key to our morning and the lock to our evening. The pattern we're seeing here of prayer in the morning and prayer in the evening, prayer in the morning and prayer in the evening is that no matter where your heart is, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what doubts are creeping in on you, prayer, closeness in communion with God is the key to our continued following Him, being His people and Him being our God. But let's just be honest before we get started in the exposition. Let's be honest. That's not how we often respond, is it? To how you always respond. Things are going wrong and you immediately think, man, I've got to be a person of prayer. I've got to be before the Lord. I've got to, I've got to draw near to Him. I'm just going to be honest with you. A lot of times, that's not what I do. And that's not what I want to do. Rather, what I would rather do is sulk and feel sorry for myself. Pull away from the Lord. Well, if He's not going to be kind to me, if He's not going to give me what I want, then I don't want anything to do with Him. Right? I act rather like a brat, <laughs> not like an obedient son. David's psalm in Psalm 5 is going to help us, I think, as we face persecution even, and attack, and turmoil in our lives. How do we respond? Well, we respond in prayer. Today's sermon is entitled, The Prayer of a Righteous Man under attack. The prayer of a righteous man under attack. How do I pray? How do I draw near to the Lord in relationship when I'm under the worst of attacks? Because it will affect you. And trust me, if you are in Christ, if you're new in Christ or if you're old in Christ, you should know this. Your life will be filled with this type of turmoil. Coming to the Lord doesn't relieve these things. It very often increases them. Jesus, in his famous parable of the soils in Matthew 13, tells us that there are those who have shallow roots, who don't fully ingest the truth of the gospel, that when persecution and suffering arises, what do they do? They wither away. They wither away. Why? Because they always thought that coming to Christ fixed them and fixed their problems and made life easy. We've made a fortune out of that in the Christian church in the West, haven't we? We've made a fortune out of saying if you'll come to Jesus, He'll fix you and He'll make your life all better. It's almost like a mother who broods over a child who skint their knee and washes it and cries with them and puts a band-aid. That's, what the, the, we, that's how we treat the gospel, like it's just a band-aid for our little boo-boos. And once we get it, everything's okay. That's not the picture of the Bible. The Bible's picture is that often coming to Christ increases the turmoil, increases the conflict, increases the persecution, increases the affliction in this life. And so I want to take your thoughts and your mind to this psalm and that reflection. And where is my heart? And what turmoil am I facing? And am I responding as a righteous man? Or am I responding as a little brat, an ungrateful child? I can't answer for you, so I'll just let the Scripture speak. Psalm 5, this is what David says. He's praying, remember? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. 
Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for you, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning, there it is, the morning psalm, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you. And watch, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Some of you don't have a place for those verses in your theology. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. The word translated temple there is dwelling place. It's also spoken over the tabernacle in 1 Samuel. So just because it says temple, and we know that David didn't have a temple like Solomon who built the temple, we do know that David is the author here, and so we take it that he's speaking about the tabernacle. Any place that the Lord dwells, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongues. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. Some of you don't have a place for that kind of praying in your theology. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. We usually come to verses like this and there's a little question mark in a place or two. And so we just kind of say, well, Lord, it must all be true. It's your word. And let's amen. Move forward, right? But today I want to camp out here just a little. This passage breaks down in two stanzas, two sections of four stanzas. Verses 1 through 7, verses 8 through 12. In stanzas, in song-like stanzas, the psalmist takes us into the inner thoughts of what a righteous person does when he is attacked from evildoers. First of all, when you face the attack of the wicked, then find protection in the Lord through prayer. When we're attacked, we often run to what we believe is the strongest thing to protect us. I mean, if you're outside my yard and you're threatening me, where am I going to go? I'm going to go in the house. Why? Because it's safer than standing in the yard with you while you're attacking me. Right? I'm going to the strongest strong. Now, if there was a fortress beside my house, I would run to that fortress. Why? Because it was stronger than my house. The fact that when you're attacked, you run to anything other than God shows you don't believe God is the strongest stronghold. You don't believe He's the best protection. When you run to your wife or your husband... Rather than God, when you run to chocolate ice cream and peanut butter, because Baskin-Robbins has 31 flavors, but we all know what the best one is, right? And it makes me feel better to eat, so I eat. When you run to gluttony, when you run to alcohol, when you run to friends, when you run to hobbies, when you run to money, 
What you're actually saying is, under attack, the best thing for me is to have those things as my protector. That's not what David does, is it? When he's attacked, where does he go? He runs to the Lord. He runs to the Lord in prayer. He runs because the gospel has taken root. The promise of God to the people has taken root in David's heart that God is our shield. God is our fortress. God is our protector. God is our defender. God is on our side. And he believes it. In his practical living, he says, under attack, under the worst of assaults, I will not trust in men. I will not trust in horses. I will not trust in the weaponry of this world. But I will trust in the God of heaven and earth. And I will run to Him in prayer. I will communicate with Him. He doesn't just assume it in some general, disconnected way like, well, God loves me, so He'll take care of me. He runs to God. So in all the turmoil that you're facing in your life, are you running to God? Are you running to something else? We call those things idols in the church. Little gods. And it can be as simple as food, or it can be as complex as drugs, but it's all what we feel is our best out, our best protection. David sees God as his protection. He runs to him in prayer. How is it that we should pray when we lift up our voice? Well, I think we see it here. First, we should pray transparently. If you look at what he says in verses 1 and 2, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. He lays himself out before the Lord. This is his King. This is my God. I will honestly say to him, Hear hear my prayer. Listen to me. It's the cry of a child to a parent when in distress. David asked God to listen to his groaning. You see that in verse 1a? Consider my groaning. That word's only used one other place in Scripture. It's one of the rarest of Hebrew words. Psalm 39, verse 3, David says, My heart became hot within me, and I mused. That word mused in Psalm 39, 3 is the groaning in our text. It means to utter something of almost silent nature. It's a, it's a guttural groan that eases up from our spirit. We don't know how to pray, and so we groan to our Father, and the Spirit groans over us to interpret our groaning to God in our prayer. You've been there before? Up against the wall, ready to throw the towel in, ready to give up. Some of you have contemplated suicide just recently. Just in the last few months, you were ready to throw it in, cash it in. It's better to be dead than alive. That's kind of where David is. He's groaning before God. He's in utter despair almost in his heart. He's broken. He's in grief. It's an inaudible, barely audible sound that David is making. And he says, listen to that. God hears it. The deepest groan of my grief comes into the ear of God as a prayer when I see Him as my King and my God. Let me tell you something. There is no little idol in your life that hears you when you groan. Matter of fact, if a relationship or a habit is your God, when you groan, it will often mock you taunt you, abandon you. 
Here David is crying out to his fortress, to his protector, in groans that are almost inaudible. They're so hard to express for him. He's in such grief and pain. And yet, in his grief and pain, he's trusting in his transparency. God, you know me. Secondly, when we pray, we should pray personally. David doesn't pray to some far-off God somewhere. He prays to, notice in verse 2, my king and my God. It's his cry to his king and his God. And it's a very specific God. It's not just to God in general, a force in the world somewhere, but rather it's the covenant God to which he prays. You notice it in verse 1? That word Lord, you might see it in all capitals, is Yahweh, the covenant God. This is the name that God gave Himself at the burning bush with Moses. Who shall I say sent me to the people? Tell them I am sent you, Yahweh. The God of the covenant. The God of the promise. That's who David's praying to. He's not praying to Allah. He's not praying to a Near Eastern God. He's not praying to some force, general New Age force that breeds through the world. He's praying to a real, tangible God. His name is Yahweh. He is the Trinitarian God. And He is David's God. There's nothing greater than knowing that God is your God. And that you are His people. And David is crying out to God from this deepest grief of his heart as he's on the run from his own son. Do you realize, I mean, I don't know what you're going through. Only God knows that. You know that. Maybe a few close acquaintances know it. But listen, Is it really as bad as all this? Have your children picked up a weapon to kill you? That's what David's facing. This is not an enemy way out there, a Philistine or someone even in Israel. This is his son. Now we touch a little bit of his grief. And where does he go? He goes to God. Because God's my king. He sits on the throne of my life. He hears my prayer. He's my Yahweh. He's my promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. He hears me when I groan. This is the response of a righteous man when he's being attacked. Third, our prayers must be consistent. They must be consistent. Look at verse 3. Oh, Lord, in the morning... You hear my voice. In the morning, you prepare a sacrifice. I prepare a sacrifice. In the morning, in the morning. The repetitiveness and the nature here says that he's doing it morning after morning after morning after morning. It reminds me of George Mueller, the great, uh, the great pastor who started so many orphanages in London for those who were without fathers, the fatherless. He took them in and he prayed. He began to pray, he says, when he was converted for his two closest friends. Sixty years later. Did you hear that? Sixty years later, he had prayed every morning for his friends to be saved. God hadn't answered. So he kept praying. A year before he died, one of those friends came to Christ. A year after he died, the other one came to Christ. Be consistent. Be persistent. In Luke 18, Jesus tells us of a woman who came before an unrighteous judge. And how was it that the unrighteous judge heard her? Because she was persistent in her coming to him. And he said, if I don't give her what she wants, she's going to keep coming every day. 
Give her what she's asking for. Now, he's not saying God's like the unrighteous judge in his unrighteousness or in his attitude, but rather that he hears the consistent prayer and cry of his people, and he answers those things. He hears them. So when we pray, we pray honestly. We lay ourselves before the Lord. We pray personally. We don't just pray to any God or some God or your God or their God, but our God. To a personal God, and we pray consistently, and we pray orderly. Now, here's a big one for me. The persistence is a problem for me because I pray, and then I go a month or two without praying about it, and then I start praying again. I'm inconsistent, but I'm even less orderly. Does that shock you that I'm not very orderly? No, it doesn't. If you know him, he does it. No, but here David is orderly. Look what he does. He says, Oh Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare, I order the sacrifice for you and watch. What he's actually saying here, and this word orderly, is the same word that was used of the priests when they made orderly sacrifices to God. God had prescribed, this is how you shall sacrifice. Don't just do it any old, any old way. Do it the way I command you to do it. And so they laid out the parts of the animal they were going to burn on the sacrifice the way God said to do it. They did it exactly. That's how he's praying. Do you prepare to pray? You're under affliction. Your heart's in turmoil. You're just kind of floating through it. You pray hit or miss, kind of every now and then. No, be persistent. Think about prayer before you pray and order it. Do something I'm also not very good at. Write it down. Write it down. Just Write it down in a journal somewhere. Write it down. How did George Mueller pray for 60 years every morning for those people? He wrote it down. How do we know he did it? Because it was in his prayer journal. Every day he entered the same prayer for these people. Be orderly. Be systematic. Now there's times for just spurts of prayer where we just pray. Something comes on us and we just pray. But in these deep and dark moments of affliction, we should prepare to pray. Prepare our hearts and prepare even what we're going to pray. Don't pray haphazardly. Pray with intent. So we pray transparently or openly, personally. We pray persistently. We pray orderly. We pray expecting an answer. I pray this way and I watch. That word watch is a military term like a man standing on guard at a gate waiting for what will come in the morning or waiting on the message to come back from the king. He sent a message. He's waiting on a message. How many of us utter prayers, and before we're finished praying, our heart says, God doesn't want to do that. You've caught that? I particularly do this when I pray for the sick. People that are dying. I'm just being open, transparent. If you're dying, a lot of times, because I am wicked and I am a little faith, I pray over the dying as if it's a foregone conclusion that God won't hear what I'm saying. In my heart. Now, you don't catch that. Usually when I pray, it sounds great. But I'm just being honest. Before the Lord, I don't think he's going to heal them. That's not how David prayed. He's under affliction. He's under attack. And he believes God will hear him. He's watching for the answer. He's waiting on God. He knows that God is good and that every good and perfect gift comes from his Father who is in heaven. So he watches for the answer like a watchman in the night. 
This is a little of how we pray. When we're under attack, we should run for God to God in, for His protection in prayer. Secondly, we face the attack of the wicked. When, then, when we face the attack of the wicked, we call on God as the righteous judge. Verses 4 through 6. We call on God as the righteous judge. David's being mistreated by wicked people. And he doesn't judge them. He calls on God to judge them. Look what he says. That's why this one of the phrases I read, and I said, some of you don't have a place in your theology for that. I'm about to explain what I mean by that. Because in our world, is it not popular to say God hates the sin, but what? Does what? That's not what this verse says. Words like abhor. Words like hate. Are spoken over the sinner. So is David mistaken? I don't think so. Because God is God, He is able to both love and hate at the same time. John Calvin said, All of those whom God loves at one time, in their, in their sin, He hated them. Yet while He hated them, He loved them. It's a strange thing, isn't it? And this is why it's here for us. And this is what I want to emphasize to you. God is righteous. He has no part with the wicked. Verse 4 tells us that. Your wicked living, God wants no part of it. You're here without Christ, your whole life is wicked. He wants no part of it. That's what he says in verse 4. You don't delight in wickedness and that evil cannot dwell with you. He wants no part of wickedness. God is righteous. He is holy. It is His nature. And He cannot abide wickedness. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't see it as a little boo-boo here or there. He sees it as abhorrent. He sees it as what it is. Rebellion. And He rejects it. He hates it. God does not accept those who approach Him in sin. Verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. When sinners pray to God, what is his response? If it's anything but a cry of repentance and a call on him for salvation, he rejects it. He doesn't listen to it. He doesn't hear it. What am I saying? The opposite is being shown to you. Lost person gathered with us here. Just like God hears David, and because David is his child, he does not hear you. When you're in a tight spot, you really are in a tight spot. And the best thing you can hope for, if you're persistent in your sin, is to run to one of those little idols and hope it props you up through the night. Because that's all you got. The God of the universe is not for you. He is against you. If you persist in your sin, you better hope alcohol or gorging yourself or your marriage or your friendships hold you over. Because God doesn't hear your prayer. So often in our culture, we're so worried about saying to sinners that God hates you. But historically, this has not been the case. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you remember his an analogy? You, O lost man, are like a spider which God holds over the abyss of the fire of his righteous indignation. He hates you. He holds you. He hasn't dropped you yet, but if you persist in your sin, 
He's going to drop you in His anger. You're going to pay the price. We're so worried about saying that because it offends people. And you say, well, I don't like that. You're here and you're lost. Your pride rises up inside your heart. You say, you can't talk to me that way. You're right, I can't. God can. He created you. He made you. He has the right to say it. And it is true. If you stay in your sin, you will taste the hate of God. The wrath and the anger of God for all of eternity. And that's what David's saying in his prayer. God, I know you're righteous and you don't delight in wicked and you don't abide the wicked and you don't hear their prayer because they are evil and you hate evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Finally, if you die outside of Christ's center, you will die outside of the hope of protection in God. If you reject Jesus, you reject God's protection, and you will taste the consequences of your sin in His just wrath against you. So often we're worried about offending people who are offending God. And may I just say, I care too much about you. I, I believe there are lost men and women and children gathered right here, and the most unloving thing I can do to you is tell you, it's okay, honey, God loves you anyway. That's not true. The most lovely thing I can say is if you stay in your sin and you run, continue to run from God and you persist in your rebellion against Christ, He will consume you in His wrath. And it won't end in a day or a thousand days. It will never end. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Because to all those He hates, while He was hating you, Christian, He was loving you. How? He sent His Son to take the wrath that you would have borne in hell on the cross. And He paid for it. He said, I can't abide any of these sinners, but I will help those who are in Christ, my son. He didn't just forget that you're a sinner. No, he remembers it because it's on the scars of his son's body in his presence every day. He remembers it, but it is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. If you are in Christ, he loves you. If you have been saved, He loves you and He is for you, not against you. But if you're outside of Christ, you can look at the cross and see the suffering of the Son of God and you can know your suffering is sure. There will be none who escape. No sin will ever enter the presence of God. No sin will ever go unpunished. It's not a little boo-boo we cover up with a band-aid called the gospel. It takes deep surgery. God cuts out the old man and puts in the new. And behold, all things are made new. So the hope that you have if you're here and you're outside of Christ is that you come to Christ. God does hate you, but in His hate for you, He has offered a way for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. So come to Him in repentance, in belief, and be saved. Third, when you face the attack of the wicked, then you should draw near to God by His grace. Verse 7. But I, 
through the abundance of your, that word steadfast love is the New Testament word for grace. Steadfast love, your grace will enter your house. But even though I, we're going to see it later in the passage, David identifies with the wicked by saying that he was once wicked too. He was once under God's wrath too, but he has entered into God's house, how? In the favor of God, in the steadfast love of God. When he begins the second section, he's transitioning into that second section of his prayer. He turns his gaze from God to the wicked and now back to God to say, You've given me grace. You have loved me. And I will enter your house in this love. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. It's the knowledge of God's hatred for sin which causes you to fear God. And fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. As long as you sit every day thinking, Oh, it doesn't matter that I do the things I do, that I sin the way I sin. As long as you think there's not a payday coming for your sin, you won't fear God. If you don't fear God, you won't run to Him for protection. So that's why I say the best thing I can tell you if you're living in sin is you have no hope outside of Christ. You will burn in hell for eternity. You will suffer the wrath of God outside of Christ. Why do I tell you that? So that you will be afraid. We've often said this too, haven't we? I don't want people to come to God out of fear. How else do they come? How else will a sinner come if he's not afraid? Nobody comes to God. Nobody comes to Christ unless they fear the Lord. Unless they see Him as holy and as a consuming fire and they run to His Son for protection and shield. That's the only hope we have. We need to create, parents, a, a healthy fear of God in our children. We need to create it in them. We need to explain it to them. We need to talk of it often. Your children won't repent of sins they don't think have punishment coming. And we need to do the same with our friends and our neighbors. Fourth, when you, see, when you face the attack of the wicked, you pray that the Lord will keep you from evil. Verse 8. So he's transitioned now. He's transitioned to say, Now, you are righteous, Lord, so lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. You see the transition? He's looked at God's character. He's seen the wickedness that surrounds him. He's looking back to the Lord now in confession saying, Lead me. Lead me in your righteousness. Take me and make me like you. Make the straight way appear before me that I might follow you in your righteousness. In all of his attacks against him, David knew that the temptation was to attack back. To return evil for evil. And in 1 Peter 3, 9, we're encouraged by Peter not to do that. Peter says, when you're attacked and evil is done against you, don't respond in evil, but rather bless them. Do good to them. And that's exactly what David's doing. He's saying, now lead me. I know my instinct is to attack them because they're attacking me, but help me. Make your righteous way straight before. Make it obvious so that I find it. When you face the attack of the wicked, then pray that the Lord will either save them or judge them. Now this is the second section that I know you will struggle with because this is one of those times where David's praying for the destruction of his enemies. But it's not just David that does this in Scripture. Before we excuse it away as, well, that's the Old Testament. We can't pray that way. Second Thessalonians would be a good place for us to look before we do that, before we excuse it away as Old Testament and Old Covenant 
Because Paul's in the New Covenant. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, he says, This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Aside, since indeed God considers it just to repay the afflictions those who afflict you. God sees it as just to repay the affliction of those with affliction those who afflict you, Christian. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Paul says the same thing David does. In verses 8 and I mean, in verses 9 and 10, he says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. He's praying like a righteous man. How can he be a righteous man? Because he understands his sin. He knows he's run to Christ for protection. He has trusted the God of the promise. He is God's child. And so therefore he prays that all those outside of God's child, all those outside who are not God's child, would face the punishment due to their sin. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. The continual hard-heartedness of the people caused David to say, if they won't believe, judge them. God is righteous. He is, he is really righteous and holy. And God, show yourself to be that. That's the way David's praying. Now, you've got to be careful when you pray this way. Paul in Romans 3.13 says that we all once had mouths that were open graves. And we all once spoke with the asp, the poison of an asp under our tongue. He's quoting the, our passage. So before you pray against your enemy, make sure you've identified the fact that you yourself were just like them. In their sin, so you were a sinner. So it's not self-righteousness you're praying. It's not, well, I'm a good person. Attack all the people that are bad, God. It's that you're saying, God... Just as you judged my sin in Christ, I pray you judge their sin. If it won't be in Christ, O oh Father, judge their sin in them. Why? Because you're righteous and your character must be upheld and the sanctity of your Son must be held high and the goodness of Christ must reign over even the emotional feelings that I have about people falling into the pit of hell. The truth of God's judgment must be upheld. You know, once I heard John MacArthur answering a question, he had a guy come down at a pastor's conference. Carlton was there with me. You might remember Carlton. The guy came to the mic at a question and answer time and said that he had a real problem with MacArthur because he preached about hell. And he didn't any longer believe in hell because that would mean his son would go to hell because his son was outside. And so what he did was he did away with a very true thing. He did away with the judgment and wrath of God. Why? Because it emotionally bothered him that his son would taste that one day. And so he had a problem with John MacArthur because he said, you seem like you're giddy and happy to preach about hell. And MacArthur said, I'm not giddy and happy to preach about it. I'm not. You've misread me. I'm not happy that anyone goes to hell, but people go to hell. When we're praying under affliction, we need to be sure that we're 
praying righteous prayers. Not mothers with little band-aids for little boo-boos. But realize that those who are wicked, if you're wicked, your wickedness is an offense to a holy God. You need to confess it. And if those outside of Christ won't come to Christ, we need to pray, God, let your justice prevail. That's the way David prays. That's the way we should pray. Finally, when you face the attack of the wicked, pray that you are able to take joy in the protection of the Lord. Finally, here he is in the midst of his affliction. He's still praying. He's still praying for joy under the protection of God. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy. In here we see the admission that David needs encouragement and reminding to sing for joy. It's kind of hard to sing for joy when you've been kicked out of your home, lost your throne, and been run out of town on a rail into the desert. It's difficult to pray with joy. It's difficult to sing, I would imagine. But here we see him connecting with that difficulty by saying, Oh God, help us pray. And help us to do it in a way that where we rejoice in you. We sing of joy in you. And spread your protection over them. Over all the righteous, those who are in you. Spread your protection over them for those who love your name so that they will exult in you. The problem with idolatry is that when you make much of your idol, you make little of God. You say, what's the big deal if I gorge myself on chocolate cake because I've had a hard day? Because what you're saying is the chocolate cake is better than Jesus. I mean, I know you don't mentally probably think that, but that's what you're saying. By your actions, why Paul warns against gluttons. Why? Because their God is their belly. Did you hear that? Their stomach rules them. That's their God. I know I'm picking on gluttony this morning, aren't I? It's because the easy one to pick on is alcohol and drugs. In a church like this, to waylay, waylay people that have an alcohol issue, the, their God is alcohol, makes everybody else feel good because you're not a drunk. But the truth is, when you eat four too many slices of chocolate cake because you felt bad and the chocolate cake makes you feel good, you're a drunk. The Bible just calls it a glutton. And what you're saying is, is the problem right here. You're not exulting in the name of the one who has saved you in those moments. It's not the prayer of a righteous man. Or when you run to your marriage and you say, if, if my partner will treat me the way I want to be treated, then I'll feel good about myself. And I'll be okay even though the world's against me. You're for me and you're my rock and you're my shield and you're my protection. What are we saying? Our joy is in our partner, not in Christ. Ultimately, when we do that with success or jobs or food or alcohol or family or friends or anything else, what we're saying to the idol is, we exalt your name. We exalt your name. You're high above the heavens. We love you. And we say to God, you're little. You're not much. You haven't been much help to me. The righteous man prays the opposite. Let my joy be in you, not in chocolate cake.
You're going to remember that line. If you're having chocolate cake today at lunch, it's okay. Just have one piece, not ten. Ultimately, it's why Paul says everything you do is worship to God. It should be. It's done in faith. So when the affliction comes, we run to Christ. And then we're able to eat our chocolate cake and find our joy in Jesus. See how that works? We run to Him, not to the cake first. We run to Him. We make much of Him. We exult in Him. We find our joy in Him. And then when we come to dinner and there's chocolate cake there, we eat each slice saying, each piece saying, God is so good that even in the moment of affliction, He gives me a piece of chocolate cake. I'm picking chocolate cake because David longed for a drink from Jacob's well, right? When he was in affliction on another occasion, what did he do in the cave? He cried out to God after finding refuge in God and said, Oh, to taste the water from my hometown. And his mighty men did what? They circled up and said, The Philistines have Bethlehem, but it's okay. We're sneaking in there. Covert action, we're getting a cup of water, we're carrying it across the desert, and we're going to give it to David. David was finding his joy in God at that moment. He was resting in God, and he expressed something that was a secondary joy. Oh God, you could show me your goodness by letting me drink from that well again. It was a, it was a hope to go home one day. But his men heard it and said, we're going to go get the cup of water. And what did they do? They ran and got the cup of water and snuck back across enemy lines and walked across the desert holding a cup of water. Can you imagine the faithfulness of these men? And they come to the cave and they hand it to David. This is the water from your well that you asked for. You know what was being said in that moment? David, you found joy in me and I will give you these things. Find your joy in me, and I'll add all these things to you. These are lesser things. They don't really matter that much. But because I'm good, I'll give you those things too. You got me, now I'll give you those things. David was so overwhelmed, he looked at the water and thought of his sinfulness and poured it on the ground. Now, at that moment, I'm just being honest, aside to this, I'd be mad. <laughs> Dude, I stuck my neck out, literally. I walked miles behind enemy lines, to get that cup and bring it, and you dumped it out? You know what happens when you find your joy in Christ alone? The lesser things of this world fade away. You see them for what they are. They're not that important. So I come back to our initial problem that we're struggling and we're in affliction and we're in turmoil. Are you making much of the name of Christ like David does in a righteous prayer? Are you making much of your turmoil and your struggle and your earthly condition? Hopefully, we will flip around to the other side of the equation and we will, because we're in Christ, begin to cry out to Him as our joy. No matter what our afflictions are. And in that, God hears our groaning. And often, He quickly answers. And the afflictions are relieved, or they're perceived better, or we're given the strength to walk through them by the grace of God. And they're no longer the, the mountains. They're molehills. 
That's the, what the prayer of a righteous man does. It doesn't change God. It changes the righteous man. It changes him. He says, God really is this good. I love him regardless of the affliction. And because God is good, he often relieves the affliction, changes our perception, or just gives us simply the grace to walk through the affliction. Let's pray.